Good morning. Very thankful to be here this morning. Very thankful to have this opportunity to study with you this morning. Uh, thank you, Bob, for the prayer on my behalf. It's my prayer, too, that I'll have something to say that you can study out further and apply in your daily lives, but most of all, that God would be glorified this morning in our worship. I need my clicker. Hold on. <clears throat> I've entitled the lesson this morning, Finding True Fulfillment. Matthew 16, verse 26 says, For what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? It's a very sobering verse to me. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? As it turns out, there's a lot of things that people pursue in the name of their own happiness, in the name of fulfillment. All too often, it's the things that feed our ego, the things that we think will make us happy that we think will give us fulfillment, those things take priority over God. And in the name of their own happiness, people's souls are being exchanged every day for the things of this world. And honestly, it is an epidemic. It's, it's an epidemic that our culture has created. Happiness and fulfillment has come to be understood by non-Christians and Christians alike as an individual's own satisfying experiences. Happiness is measured by experiences that are emotionally satisfying to us, right? And, and we can think of the things that, that we've, we've done or the, the, our experiences and, and those things that have made us happy. And a lot of the times we base our own happiness off of those satisfying experiences. And you know, it's interesting for a country, though, that prides itself on pursuing happiness. It's right there in our Declaration of Independence. America isn't even in the top 15 in world happiness. In fact, in the last 40 years, the GDP, the gross domestic product, has risen and happiness has dropped off. Studies also showed that in the 50s and 60s that clinical depression was considered to be a very rare condition. And, uh, and I understand, too, that medical science has advanced and, and we know more about it. But it would seem that as America has continued to flourish, household income has risen over that time. Yet happiness has dropped, and people are more depressed. You know, the World Health Organization is one of the leading medical bodies in the world, and they gathered a ton of data and did a ton of research to find out why this was the case, essentially. And you know, many scientists won't say, or won't say that depression is just a biological phenomenon. They say that it has social factors as well. It's a social indicator which means that there's social factors and social, uh, oh, what's the word? Uh, social, there's a social component as well as a psychological component. And really there's a disconnect with what scientists actually know about depression and what the public is actually told. Nobody talks about these wider social issues. <clears throat> and... It was explained in this study that, as Americans, we've been fed this misleading idea of what really makes us satisfied and happy. In turn, we lived our lives according to the wrong script, so to speak. So instead of questioning the script, we just think, you know, there might be something wrong with me biologically. And again, I understand that there are bi biological components with depression, but we've got to think about these, these societal uh, these societal components as well and influences 
And you know, there's been other studies that have shown that it, they, they took data from all these different countries and they said, what makes you happy? Do, if you're unhappy, do what you think will make you happy. And what they found was that in the U.S., people did that and they didn't become happier. But in these other countries like Russia, China, and Japan, they did become happier. And the difference they found was that in America, if they, it was almost subconscious. If they decided to make themselves happier, they went and did something for themselves. It was a self-seeking attitude. But in these other countries, they went out and did something for themselves or for other people. They went and served their fellow man. And especially for China and Japan, a country that isn't, you know, predominantly Christian, these are Christian principles that we find. And the exact opposite is, is what? Greed and, uh, and jealousy and materialism. That's the exact opposite of, of serving our fellow man. And that attitude is almost so implicit in their culture that they don't even think about it. And it's the same thing that we see in America. It's so implicit in our culture that if we don't feel happy, we go and do something for ourselves. We go buy something for ourselves or whatever. <clears throat> Genesis 3 verses 1 through 5 says, Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said that ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God, God has said, you shall not eat of it, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, ye shall not surely die, for, you, for God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, your eyes will be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. So one of the first lies that Satan ever told to Eve, he said, you will be as gods, and you'll know the difference between good and evil. From the very beginning, Satan put into their heads this idea that, we could, that they could be like gods. They could set up on their own as if, the, as if they had created it themselves. They could be their own masters. They could invent some sort of their own happiness outside of God, apart from God. And you know what? He's telling us the exact same thing today. That's the lie he's telling everybody. This is a quote from Justice, a former Supreme Court justice. He said, At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own existence of meaning of the universe and of the mystery of human life. So technically, according to our Supreme Court, it's a person's right to be able to define their own reality, their own morals, their own existence. Doesn't that sound exactly like what Satan told Eve in the garden? From the devil himself, the very first lie he told you, he said, You can be as God's. Think about that for a moment. It's the law of the land in America that we have the right to define our own concept of existence. People, people are perfectly justified, in this case, in murdering babies because they don't want to have to live with the consequences. We don't want to live with the consequences of our own sin, so we make our own reality. I ask you again, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Today, there are two billion people that would classify themselves as Christians, yet it's clear that most people don't really dedicate themselves to living Christian lives. The world we live in is full of distractions and pleasures that pull us away from our spiritual lives. If only I had, you can fill in the blank. And I ask you, how would you finish that sentence? How have we finished that sentence in our own minds? We probably think time, back to times that we've, we've said this exact thing. If only I had this thing. If only I had this opportunity. You know, if I had the opportunity that so-and-so has, I'd make much more out of it. 
you know, something like that. And honestly, for me, you know, I've, I've made the exact same mistake. I was thinking on a material level. We look to things to make us happy, right? While those decisions oftentimes seem harmless to us, and yes, it's, it's okay to, to buy things for ourselves and, and so on, but ultimately we're forming our own view of what happiness looks like in our minds based off experiences that we've seen, things uh, that we've done. Happiness now is me- measured by experiences that are emotionally satisfying. Ours is a culture in which the pursuit of pleasure is seen as one's ultimate measure of fulfillment and happiness. Our own fulfillment is defined by what we truly value in life. And see, fulfillment is really an individualistic thing. It's based on every other individual. It's what we truly value. And we're going to seek after that thing to make us feel fulfilled. So things we truly value. Job said said in Job 23 verse 12 said, I have esteemed the words of his mouth, speaking of God, more necessary, more than my necessary food. You know, food at this time was something that was very valuable to Job, no doubt. He breaks it down to the most fundamental level of a human's needs, and that's food. Food physically sustains us. It keeps us alive. We spend a lot of time working so we can put food on the table and provide for, in other ways for our families. And you know, again, this was a very low point in Job's life. He'd lost everything, so more than likely, food was probably not something he took for granted. It was something that was very important, important to him. It was something he valued. But Job said, I need God more than I need to eat. It was something so simple, something that we take for granted, but very, very necessary for our well-being. And just as necessary for our physical sustainment, we need God ten times more, an infinite times more. How can something so necessary, so important that we take for granted, how can that be something that we take for granted? And, of course, it's because, you know, we don't have to really worry about, a lot of us don't have to worry about where our next meal comes from. And most Americans don't. You know, most Americans are very wealthy compared to the global average. Did you know that if you're living in America today and just making minimum wage, and you, even if you had a spouse and three kids, you're still in the top 26% as far as global average, or global wealth is concerned. And you're three times more wealthy than the global median income. And I'll take that a step further. If you're just making what the average American makes, you're in the top 8% in global wealth. That's staggering. And we think that we we have it tough sometimes. We need to look at it from a larger perspective. And it's because of this wealth that our society has slowly created this idea that we don't need God in our lives. We think, look at all the things that I've done. Look at what I've built for myself. Look what I've accomplished. You know, I heard a story about a man. This is a true story about a Christian man. And he had gone through, through a very bad financial crisis. And this man, he admitted, he said, I don't, didn't think I had a pride problem until I saw my way of life completely taken away from me. And you know, that's probably true for most of us. We tend to have a sense of satisfaction in the things that we, you know, in, in what we do for a living, maybe, or the things that we've accomplished. Maybe it's a heritage or a family thing. But at what point does that stuff, those things, become a pride problem in our life? At what point does our satisfaction or our pursuit in worldly things become a stumbling block to ourselves and to others? 
like this person said, he said, I had a pride problem and I, I couldn't even see it. They were blinded by their pride. And he said, it took me losing almost everything to realize that I was proud of who I was. I was proud of who my family was and I was proud of what I did for a living. Colossians 3 verses 1 through 3 says, If you be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God, set your affection on the things above, not on the things of this earth, for you are dead and your life is, and your life is hid with Christ and God. I think even as Christians, sometimes we can run into a bit of an identity crisis, so to speak. Our identity becomes our things, our occupation, our accomplishments. And, you know, we spend a lot of our time making a living, making money, going to our jobs, uh, so we can make money to provide for our family. And that, that's a good thing. But for most of us, the things that we do, who we are as a, as a physical person, it does become part of our identity. We spend a lot of time thinking about the future, planning for the future, thinking about work and finances and business. <clears throat> we think, you know, how can I achieve this or earn this? Uh, we spend a lot of, but we spend a lot of time thinking about those things, right? How much time are we spending in, in spiritual things? How much time are we using to work on our spiritual lives? Are we setting time aside to work on, to work on our children's spiritual lives and help them? to make sure that our families are on the right path spiritually. What did the writer say here? He said, set your affections on the things above. It says, you're dead to the, to the things of this world. Why should it matter what may happen to us tomorrow if, like this verse says, our lives are hid in Christ? For Job, knowing where his next meal came pr from was probably a big concern for him at that point. But he said, you know, more than all of that, I need God, first and foremost. I need God to sustain my spiritual life. So I'd like to pose a question. What if, like Job, we were to lose everything? What if everything you had worked for was gone tomorrow? Would we still have Christ? Or would our pride be revealed? Would it reveal that our identity, in fact, had been in our things all along? What if it would be revealed that we've been placing our confidence in ourselves and our things other than Christ? You know, we've he heard sayings like, real peace isn't the absence of tragedy, but the presence of a Savior who's bigger than your tragedy. And yes, that's a very true saying, and we have many, many scripture to back that up. But do we actually believe it? Do, do we believe and do we have confidence in what God tells us in the scripture? That he's going to take care of us no matter what may happen to us in this world. <clears throat> now I'd like to talk about King Solomon you know, we can learn many lessons from him. And uh, I would encourage you to read through Ecclesiastes, to read about the things that Solomon did. You know, it was really a quest. Uh, it was about a man's quest for, for fulfillment in life. Ecclesiastes is a story of a man's meaning for fulfillment. We know that Solomon's life was essentially left unfulfilled. He was a very busy man. He tried... Everything that could be tried, he did everything there was to do. But at the end of his experience, he was left unfulfilled and disappointed. And Ecclesiastes expresses some of the frustrations about life that he experienced. He tries materialism. He, 
and I would like to read all of this, but for the sake of time, we're gonna, I'm just going to give you a quick synopsis. He obtains property. He has people working for him. He has many possessions, land, herds, flocks. He acquires money. He achieves greatness, success, and fame. He, had a very, he was very successful in the things that he did, but at the very end of it, he said, death makes this entire search meaningless. What he tries is hedonism, and that's really just a fancy word for the pursuit of pleasure, self-indulgence. He tried to fill himself with everything that he possibly could that, that was physical, that was worldly. Being king, he was very rich. He had access to virtually anything and everything that he could think of. He tried stimulants. It says that he, he said, I searched in my heart how to gratify my flesh with wine. He tried singers. He tried sexual pleasure. He had over 700 wives. But at the end of it all, what did he say? Let's look at verse, Ecclesiastes 2, verse 9. So I was great and increased with more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor, and this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. I ask you again, what is a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? You know, he experienced the paradox of pleasure, the law of diminishing returns. The more pleasure that he sought, the less happy and the less fulfilled he felt. The less happiness he felt. 1 Kings 11, verse 3 through 4 says, And he had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. For it came to pass when Solomon was old that his wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not perfect with the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. So the theme all throughout Ecclesiastes really is the vanity in worldly pursuits. Talk about living your life to excess. Solomon did it. Probably to a greater extent than anyone else at that point, and that's what he said, or anybody else that's lived on this earth. He was the wisest man to ever live at that point. And despite that great gift that God had given him, that wasn't enough to keep him from falling. That wasn't enough to keep him from getting to falling into these worldly pleasures. You know, Solomon, he was eventually humbled. But before it was all said and done, before it was all said and done, he was humbled. But through all that, all through all that experience, he was blinded by his pride. He was blinded into thinking that he could satisfy himself and all these other things besides God. And it says that his heart was eventually turned away from God, turned towards other gods. And you think about that being idolatry, of course. You think about India being called the land of idols, but isn't America the same way, just in a, in a different way? But people pray at the altar of entertainment and their own satisfaction. And if anything takes priority over God, it's idolatry. One could ask, you know, how can a man so close to God eventually get to that point? After all, he was granted the great ability of wisdom by God. And I think the short answer again, again is pride. He was probably really proud of who his father was, King David. He was proud of that family lineage. He was proud of the gift that God had given him. He was proud of all of those possessions that he had. 
And again, he was blinded by it. And he said, at the end of it all, those things are vanity. They're useless. You know, I don't think we could talk about fulfillment without talking about the fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, verses 19 through 23 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanliness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. There's a battle between the flesh and the spiritual. And we see here contrasted the, but the contrast between the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. I would submit to you this morning that the lack of fulfillment or feeling of needing more in our lives means that we're lacking these fruits of the Spirit in some way. Think about it. If a person is missing one of those things in their lives, you can see how that would be a problem. You can look at one of these, you can pick out just one of them and picture a person with, that has an absence of that in their lives. For example, if A person's not kind, they seem like they're miserable people. If we see somebody who has no self-control, their lives are a mess. That one thing, self-control, that's absent in their life, that that thing could bring stability. It could bring less heartache in their lives. But they're out of control. And so it's fitting that the writer here, he begins with love. Because love is the motivation for us living the spiritual life. We have to be motivated, first of all, by the love that God and Christ showed us. We, that love should motivate us to live the spiritual life. Without a love for God, then our lives are left with a massive void and there's no way that we can bear the fruit of the Spirit. And you might say, well, there's a few things on that list, like peace and joy that we can't control. But let's read Romans 5, verses 1 to, through 2. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by whom also we have access by faith into his grace, wherein you stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. It's because of Christ's love that we can have joy and peace. And he's saying here that joy comes from having peace with God. Peace with God brings justification, or comes from justification. And justification brings joy. It says we can rejoice. To know that we're justified by Christ's blood It says, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We can have peace with God. We can have a joy that Jesus said is based in righteous living, and it's based in being justified by him through his blood. Not that we could ever be perfect, but if we strive to follow Christ and his will for our lives, then there's peace, there's joy, there's satisfaction that we can't find anywhere else. And you know that peace transcends any current state that we might find ourselves in. That joy transcends, transcends present circumstances because it's based in a spiritual reality. That's fulfillment that you cannot find anywhere else in the world, just as Solomon learned in Ecclesiastes. And I think that, you know, and, and when we think we can find joy in the pursuit of happiness, we think we can find it 
by, by, by pursuing our own happiness, but really it's a pursuit of selfishness. We're selfish. <clears throat> James 3, verses 13 through 18 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by their good uh, let him show it by their good life, by deeds done, in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambitions in, in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but, is, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. You know, I can think back to every bad decision that I've ever made, and I, I, I can chalk it up to pride and selfishness. That's the root of, of every, every sin and every difficulty we have in our life. James 4, verses 1 through 3 says, From whence comes wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lust that war in your members. Ye lust and ye have not, ye kill and desire to have, and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye seek amiss that they may consume it, that you may consume it upon your lusts. He said the problem stems from your lust, your selfish desires. And we talked about hedonism earlier with Solomon. Do what makes you happy. It's all about self. But you know what that does? That produces chaos in our life. It talks about wars and fightings. It's chaos. Verse 4, it says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that friend, the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever, therefore, will be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. And that verse says it all. If we're friends of the world, if we want to make friends of the world, then that makes us an enemy with God. We can't have both. But all too often, we think we, we can. We want to say, yes, I'm a friend of the world. I don't care about these worldly things. <clears throat> but we want to push that boundary, don't we? And by pushing that boundary, eventually... It makes us to where we're willing to sacrifice our own morals, morals for worldly gain and pleasure. James 4 of our 6 says, But he giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth, gra giveth grace to the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your ha hands, ye sinners, and purify your hearts, ye double-minded. Be afflicted and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy into he heaviness. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. This is what I would call a cure for worldliness. Submit to God. It speaks of not being double-minded. Wanting God and the world at the same time. And James outlines it here for us. He starts and ends with humility. So if I'm ever going to recognize my selfish ambitions, if I'm ever going to truly check my life and the way that I'm living in comparison to the standard of Christ, it's going to take a great deal of humility to do that. You know, pride is the ultimate concealer of our sin. You know, if there's sin in our life, pride blinds us to who we truly are inside. It doesn't allow us to see ourselves the same way that God sees us. Pride will blind us and to make us believe that we're not doing anything wrong. Pride will blind us and, to make, and, and prevent us from ever admitting that there may be something wrong in our life. It prevents us from seeing those worldly things, seeing them from what they truly are. And they're worldly. It prevents us from seeing, seeing our selfish desires in our lives. So in order to live a fulfilled life, we need to be humble. We need to submit ourselves to God and see clearly the way God sees us. 
and see clearly the way God sees the world. <clears throat> we need to make sure we get the real thing. Matthew 6, verses 19 through 21 says, Lay not up for yourselves treasures upon earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt, where thieves do break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Christ is saying here, he said, stop placing your value in worldly things. The wealth and goods that we can obtain in this world, they're perishable. Just like our time here on this earth, they're temporary. Rather, he's saying, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. He's saying, get the real thing. Don't be cheated. He said, don't let the devil make a fool out of you. Stop treasuring treasure. You know, the devil made a fool out of the wisest man to ever live on this earth besides Christ. <clears throat> and he can do it to us today. Mark 4, verses 18 through 19 says, And these are they which were sown among, you, uh, sown among thorns. This is the parable of the sower, by the way. Such as hear the word, and the cares of this world, and the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things entering in, choke the word, and it becometh unfruitful. It says they became unfruitful because of the cares of this world. That's what causes us to be unfruitful today. It's what causes us to lose sight of the true treasure that Christ has given to his children. It's the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the lusts of other things. You know, sometimes we can't see anything except for what's right in front of us. And that's, I guess that's what's called having vision. We need to have vision, spiritual vision. We need to have an eternal perspective Christ said, lay not up for yourself treasure in heaven, or lay not up for yourselves tre treasures of this world, but in heaven. Invest in heaven. Invest our lives in heaven. Invest our families and our children's lives in heaven. Philippians 1, verses 22, 21 through 23 says, for, me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what shall I choose? I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. You know, it's been said that a person is not really ready to live until they're first ready to die. Only once is a person ready to die, and actually it seems it's when they're, then they're ready to live. Some people wait too long to come to that place. And sadly, it takes them being on their deathbed to finally come to that place that they're actually ready to live and give their life to Christ. They think about all the times that they've squandered over, all the time that they've squandered over selfish desires. So by being actually on their deathbed, they're ready to do all those things that they should have done when they had plenty of time and opportunity. But they wasted it. Don't waste the time that God has given you on worldly things that don't matter. And I don't want anyone, again, going away from this sermon thinking that it's not, it's not okay to work hard and, and provide for our family or to even be entertained and have, have things and buy things. Because, you know, we, we, we have to work and provide for our family. Maybe we want to set our family up for the future, but what are we doing for their soul? What are we doing for our soul? Are we worried about our soul's future? Because... At the end, on our deathbed, that's the only thing that's going to matter. When we come to the end of this life, we're going to be worried about our souls and our family's souls. We need to 
invest our time and resources into the kingdom. You know, Paul had come to that point in his life. He said he was ready to depart and be with Christ. He said, it's far better for me to be with Christ. How wonderful it is for a person to actually come to that place where they're ready to die, even though Paul was a younger man by our standards. He probably had plenty of time left. But that's hope and death. He was ready to be with Christ. He had no confidence in anything that this world had to offer him. Except for those spiritual things, the people he had invested in in this world. You know, we've not been called to the wisdom of this world, but to to godly wisdom. And that's the next thing. Speaking of getting the real thing, we need to have real wisdom. The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. The word single here means figuratively clear. We need to have clear eyes. We need to see the world for what it truly is. To see life and have a clear understanding through the wisdom of God's word. Yes, we have to be in the world, but we need to see it clearly through God's word and through God's wisdom. I've often thought about how much more difficult it would be to have a worldly viewpoint in life, to believe that there's no God, to believe that all of this just happened. It takes a whole lot more faith, I feel, that, to believe that, this, that all this happened. Our eyes need to be clear. We need to block out all those distractions. And that means that we need to see ourselves the way God sees us, like we talked about earlier. We have to be honest with ourselves when we see that there, there might be things amiss in our lives. That means we have to drop our pride. We need to see God for who he is. We need to take his commandments for what they are, not our own interpretations. We can't twist God into being indifferent with the way we live our life or the decisions we make because at the, end of the, at, the, at the end of the day, God just wants to make me happy. He just wants me to be happy. That's not who God is. We need to see him clearly. We need to be single-minded. James 1 verse 8 says, For a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. We know what worldly wisdom looks like. It's clouded, it's perplexing, and it's ever-changing. Think about that. Worldly wisdom changes over time. A person, or our culture's morals change over time. And now what we call morality is in fact immoral in a lot of ways. It's evil. We need to have real wisdom. We need to have real worship. Matthew 6 verse 24 says, For no man can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. There is one Lord. You know, Jesus doesn't just want a place in our life. He doesn't want to be just a little box that we can take off a shelf and, and take them out when we, need, when we need them. He doesn't even want prominence in our lives. But he demands preeminence in our lives. He de- demands supremacy in our lives. And if he's Lord in the truest sense of that word, then he'll have no rival in our lives. We're either a servant to the world or we're a servant of Christ. We can't have both. You know, the Bible speaks over and over again about Christians having an inheritance. Titus 3, verses 3 through 8 says, For we ourselves also are become foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving others, divers' lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. 
But after that, the kindness of the Lord, our Savior, toward man appeared, not by the works of righteousness, which we, righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing and regeneration and the renewing and renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he said on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. You know how wealthy you are today? You add up everything that money can't buy and death can't take away. Then you'll truly know how wealthy you are. And as far as being in the body of Christ, you can think of all the blessings that we experience and that Christians experience by being a part of the body of Christ. But you know, greater than that is Christ's blood and death cannot take away Christ's blood. Death can't take away that inheritance that Christ has gifted to his children. Christ said, being justified by his grace, we're made heirs. That's true fulfillment. Greater than any trust fund or estate or inheritance that has ever been had on this earth, if we're Christians, if we're washed in his blood, then we're heirs. We can inherit something that's absolutely priceless. And again, I ask you, what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? Don't put a, pro put a price on your soul this morning. That's all I have prepared I appreciate the kind attention. If there's one that has been subject to the gospel call, that's been taught and wishes to obey their Lord in baptism, or if there's one that needs the prayers of the church, we ask that you would come as we stand and sing.